This is the Mystery History Podcast. This is going to be another one where it's just me, but it's going to be the last one. So last time you got to listen to me by myself. I know it's not great. I'm doing my best. Um, but yeah, today we're going to be talking about the life and times of Jimi Hendrix, which is, I'm sure it's not just me. He's one of my all-time favorite musicians, guitarists. He's a lot of labels, but fantastic musician. Um, before we get to that, we have a little bit of news. We hit, we're at 4.1 thousand downloads in 24 countries, which is like, that's mind blowing to me. I never thought we'd hit a thousand downloads and now we're at 4,000 and we're in 24 countries. That seems like a lot. I'm not a geographer, but that's a couple, you know, pretty exciting stuff. We have some of our friends we want to shout out and plug. Uh, Forensic Miles, fantastic podcast. Go listen to them. That's all I'm going to say. Dead Academy podcast, fantastic. Go listen. Do that. Crime and Closets. It's two moms hiding in their closet drinking wine talking about crime. That's fantastic. Go listen to that. And The Late Night Slice. Uh, They have a... Yeah, they're just great. So go do that too. Even all kinds of stuff to listen to. Never going to be bored again. You're welcome. We also talk about us for a second. We have a website, mysteryhistorypodcast.com, which you can get all of our episodes at. Pretty cool. We also have hoodies. We got t-shirts. We got little neck gaiters. So if you need a mask, you get one there. Uh, We got pillows because, you know, you like to be comfy. Everybody does. We got long sleeve shirts, short sleeve shirts, tank tops, any kind of shirt you can think of. We got it. Pretty cool. Got the logo on there. Looking super good. So, yeah, go check that out. And from there, we have a link to our Patreon page, which you can become a member of if you like us. Just it's a little bit of support. Help us get some new software, equipment, all that good stuff. We're never going to charge for the show, but I mean, it's just, you know, that's life. Life gets tough. Just uh, support us if you can. If not, it's fine. I guess. We'll live. Maybe. But yeah, that's it. Uh, leave us some comments on Apple Podcasts. Seems to be our biggest, uh, where most people listen. So if you don't mind giving us a review, uh, five stars would be great. If it's not five stars, just don't leave it. Don't say that. Uh, leave us a comment. No, I'm just kidding. Leave whatever kind of rating. We want to see how we're doing. Um just leave us leave us a comment. You can leave a comment on there. Hopefully a good one. If not, I'll just cry a little bit. But hey, that's life too, you know? A lot of life going on this week. Uh, yeah, so do that. And we, you'll also leave us a comment on Instagram. Talk to us. We like to talk to people. So, yeah, send us a message. Uh, anything like that. You leave us a message, comment. Uh, yeah, we, we'll respond to as many people as we can. Leave us a voice message. That's pretty neat. You can also do that on the uh, website. There's a link there. You can record a voice message and send it to us. We love hearing from you guys. So, yeah. We can do video messages even on Instagram. Take it to the next level. You know, let's, uh, let's be friends. But, all right. That's, uh, that's enough talk from me. Let's get into the man of the hour. This again, sorry. This will probably be another shorter one just because it's me. I feel like it's, it's hard to talk. I don't like to talk as it is. And it's hard to talk... To myself for an hour So I'm going to do my best But it's probably going to be another shorter one But next week We'll be back full force 
and then we'll be there'll be a lot of rambling about nothing. There'll be a lot of tangents because we do that a lot. There'll be a lot of a lot of the stuff you love to hate. We'll be right back towards it. <laughs> so yeah, let's get into it. Mr. Jimi Hendrix. He was born Johnny Allen Hendrix at 10:15 a.m. on November 27th, 1942, at Seattle Kings County Hospital. He was later renamed James Marshall by his father, James Al Hendricks, which I guess you can do. I've never heard of somebody being like, you know what? I didn't nail it the first time. We're going we're gonna to fix that. <laughs> it's so funny to think of a parent naming their kid and then a week later being like, shit, I don't like it. Not a fan. <laughs> I'm sure it happens more often than you'd think, but it's just you never hear about it. That's just a funny thought. Um, so here is a little bit about his parents. In 1941, after moving to Seattle, Al met Lucille Jeter um, at a dance. They married on March 31st, 31st, <laughs> March 31st, 1942. Al, who had been drafted by the U.S. Army to serve in World War II, left uh, to begin his basic training only three days after the wedding. That's not a good honeymoon. Um, Johnny Allen Hendricks was born November 27, 1942 in Seattle. He was the first of Lucille's five children. In 1946, Johnny's parents changed his name to James Marshall Hendricks in honor of Al and his late brother, Leon Marshall. Stationed in Alabama at the time of Hendricks' birth, Al was denied the standard military furlough afforded servicemen for childbirth. His commanding officer placed him in a stockade to prevent him from going AWOL to see his infant son in Seattle, which is pretty fucked up. He spent two months locked up without trial, um, and while the stockade received a telegram, while in the stockade, he received a telegram announcing his son's birth. What a terrible way to receive news about something so important. Yeah, that'd be awful. Um, during Al's three-year absence, Lucille struggled to raise her son. When Al was away, Hendrix uh, was mostly cared by cared for by family members and friends, especially Lucille's sister, sister Dolores Hall, and her friend Dorothy Harding. Al received an honorable discharge from the U.S. Army on September 1, 1945. Two months later, unable to find Lucille, Al went to Berkeley, California, home of a, of a family friend named Miss Champ, who had taken care of and had attempted to adopt Hendrix. This is where Al saw his son for the first time. After returning from service, Al reunited with Lucille, but his inability to find steady work left the family impoverished. They both struggled with alcohol and often fought when intoxicated. The violence sometimes drove Hendrix to withdraw and to hide in a closet in their home. His relationship with his brother Leon, who was born in 1948, was close but precarious. While Leon, in and out of foster care, they lived with an almost constant threat of fraternal separation. In addition to Leon, Hendricks had three younger siblings, Joseph, who was born in 1949, Kathy, who was born in 1950, and Pamela, who was born in 1951, all of whom Al and Lucille gave up to foster care and adoption. The family frequently moved, staying in cheap hotels and apartments around Seattle. On occasion, family members would take Hendricks to Vancouver to stay at his grandmother's. A shy and sensitive boy, he was deeply affected by his life experiences. In later years, he confided to a girlfriend that he had been the victim of sexual abuse by a man in uniform. Oh, that's awful. By the summer of 1958, Al had purchased Jimmy a $5 second-hand acoustic guitar from one of his friends. Shortly thereafter, Jimmy joined his first band, the Velvetones. 
After a three-month stint with the group, Jimmy left to pursue his own interests. The following summer, Al purchased Jimmy his first electric guitar, a Supro Ozark uh, 1560S. Jimmy used it when he joined the Rocking Kings, which is the name of the band. I also read a story, I don't have it in my notes here, but I was reading about it, and apparently when he was little, his dad, Al, would ask him to sweep up around the house, and he would find it still dirty, and he was wondering what he was doing. And one day, he walked in and into a room, and he was playing, Jimmy was playing it like a guitar. So he was just using the the broom to act act out playing a guitar, which is pretty like pretty crazy when you think about what he became to be. But shortly thereafter, he began performing with his band, The Rocking Kings. In 1959, he dropped out of high school and worked odd jobs while continuing to follow his musical aspirations. Um, before he was 19, he was caught twice in stolen cars. And he was given the option between joining the army or going to prison. And I think, which everybody would do, he joined the army. Um, he left home to enlist in the United States Army in, in, in November of 1962. He arrived on November 8th. And soon afterward, he wrote a letter to his father that said, There's nothing but physical training and harassment here for two weeks. Then you go to jump school. You get hell. They work you to death, fussing and fighting. So he obviously was not a fan. Um, in his next letter home, Hendrix, who had left his guitar in Seattle um, at the home of his girlfriend, whose name was Betty Jean Morgan, asked his father to send it to him as soon as possible, stating, I really need it now. His father obliged and sent the red silver tone Dance Electro, on which Hendrix had hand-painted the words Betty Jean to Fort Campbell. His apparent obsession with the instrument contributed to his neglect of his duties, which led to taunting and physical abuse from his peers, who, um, who at least once hid the guitar from him, and he had to beg for it to be returned, which is awful. It's the only thing that brings him solace in there. Messing with him. That's, yeah, it's messed up. In November 1961, fellow serviceman Billy Cox walked past an army club and heard Hendrix playing. Um, impressed by Hendrix's technique, which Cox described as a combination of John Lee, Hooker, and Beethoven, um, Cox borrowed a bass guitar and the two jammed. Within weeks, they began performing at bass clubs on the weekends with other musicians and a loosely organized band called the Casuals. Hendrix completed his paratrooper training in just over eight months, and Major General C.W.G. Rich awarded him the prestigious Screaming Eagles patch on January 11, 1962. By February, his personal conduct had begun to draw criticism from his supervisors. They labeled him an unqualified marksman and often caught him napping on duty and failing to report for bed checks. On May 24th, um, Hendricks' platoon sergeant, James C. Spears, filed a report which stated, He has no interest whatsoever in the Army. It is my opinion that Private Hendricks will never come up to the standards required of a soldier. I feel that the military service will benefit if he is discharged as soon as possible. On June 29th, Hendricks was granted a general discharge or general discharge under honorable conditions. Um, he later spoke of his dislike of the army and lied that he had received that he had received a medical discharge after breaking his ankle in his 26 parachute jump. See, I read a book one time and I was under the impression that he actually did break his ankle, but I guess he didn't. He was just given a honorable discharge because he said he did, or maybe they were just trying to find an excuse. But either way, that's pretty interesting. 
In September of 1963, after Cox was discharged from the Army, um, he and Hendricks moved about 20 miles across the state line from Fort Campbell to Clarksville, Tennessee, and formed a band named the King Casuals. In Seattle, Hendricks saw Butch Snipes play with his teeth, and now the the second or the Casuals' second guitarist, Alfonso Baby Boo Young, was performing this guitar gimmick. Not to be upstaged by Hendricks, um, or not to be upstaged, Hendricks also learned to play this way. He later the, explained, the idea of doing that came to me in Tennessee. Down there you have to play with your teeth or, or else you've got no shot. <laughs> There's a trail of broken teeth all over the stage. <laughs> what? Uh, I couldn't, that would hurt so badly. I couldn't even imagine. Although they, although they began to play or playing low-paying gigs at obscure venues, the band eventually moved to Nashville's Jefferson Street, which was the traditional heart of the city's black community and home of a thriving rhythm and blues music scene. They earned a brief residency playing at a popular venue in town, the Club del Morocco. And for the next two years, Hendrix made a living performing at a circuit of venues throughout the South that were affiliated with the theater's owners, uh, theater, sorry, the Theater Owners Booking Association, also known as TOBA, or T-O-B-A is the acronym, widely known as the Chitlin Circuit. In addition to playing in his own band, Hendrix performed as a backing musician for various soul, R&B, and blues musicians, including Wilson Pickett, Slim Harpo, Sam Cooke, Ike and Tina Turner, and Jackie Wilson. In January 1964, he had outgrown the circuit um, and was frustrated by having to follow the rules of band leaders. Hendrix decided to venture out on his own. He moved into the Hotel Teresa in Harlem, where he befriended... Ooh, this is a rough name, sorry. Lithophane Prigden? Prid, Pridgen? Pridgen, I think is his name. Sorry, butcher that one. Known as Faye. That's way easier. Should have started with that. Who became his girlfriend. Um, a Harlem native with, a connection, or with connections throughout the area's music scene. Pr- Prigden? Faye? We'll call her Faye from now on. That's way better. Way easier on me. Um, Faye provided him with shelter, support, and encouragement. Hendrix also met the Allen twins, Arthur and Albert. In 1964, Hendrix won um, first prize in the Apollo Theater Amateur Contest. Hoping to secure a career opportunity, he played the Harlem Club circuit and sat with various bands. At the recommendation, recommendation of his former associate, Joe Tex Ronnie Isley, um, he was granted an audition that led to, a, led to an offer to become a guitarist for the Isley, Isley Brothers backup band. Mm-hmm the IB specials, uh, which he readily accepted. That kind of was a letdown. It was like, the Isley Brothers, nice. And then I said, backup band. I was like, "Mm, okay, that's still something, you know. We're not picky out here. Throughout the latter half of 1965 and into his first, uh, the first part of 1966, Jimmy played the rounds of smaller venues throughout uh, Greenwich Village, catching up with the Animals bassist Chaz Chandler. Uh, During a July performance at Caf Wah, Chandler was impressed with Jimmy's performance and returned again in September 1966 to sign Hendrix to an agreement that would have him move to London to form a new band. Switching gears from bass player to manager, Chandler's first task was to change Hendrix's name to Jimmy. Um, Featuring drummer uh, Mitch Mitchell, what a name, that was the drummer's name, Mitch Mitchell, and bassist Noel Redding. The newly formed Jimi Hendrix experience quickly became the talk of London in the fall of 1966. 
While performing in England, Hendrix built up quite a f- following among the country's rock royalty, with the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, the Who, and Eric Clapton all becoming admirers of his work. Uh, one critic for the British music magazine, The Melody Maker, said that he had great stage presence and it looked at times as if he were playing with no hands at all. That's, I never even thought about like Britain in the 60s. Like there's, it would have been so insane to just go to concerts there. Like when these guys were getting big, I'm sure they're like, I'm sure they played together at some time. So it's like you probably paid 10 bucks, not even 10 bucks in the 60s. Probably paid nothing and saw some of the best bands there have ever been. Like that's pretty amazing when you stop and think about it. Just uh, one of those, it's like lightning in a bottle. One of those times it's just, it'll probably never be another time like that. Pretty wild. Um, the experience's first single, Hey Joe, spent 10 weeks on the UK charts, topping out at number six in early 1967. The debut single was quickly followed by the release of a full length album, Are You Experienced? a psychedelic musical compilation featuring the anthems of a generation. Are You Experience has remained one of the most popular rock albums of all times, featuring tracks like Purple Haze, The Wind Cries Mary, Foxy Lady, Fire, and Are You Experienced. Yeah, pretty classic album. That's got to be, yeah, one of the best ever made, in my opinion. Although Hendrix experienced overwhelming success in Britain, it wasn't until he returned to America in June 1967 that he ignited the crowd at the Monterey International Pop Festival with his incendiary performance of Wild Thing. Literally overnight, the Jimi Hendrix experience became the most popular and highest grossing touring act in the world. And this was where he, if you've ever seen that famous picture of him setting his guitar on fire, this is where it was. Yeah, he... He lit his guitar on fire, and I don't have the quote right in front of me, but it's he basically said he was sacrificing his guitar to rock music, which is pretty, pretty awesome, I would say. Um, back in America, Jimi Hendrix built his own recording studio, Electric Lady Studios, in New York City. The name of this project became the basis for the most demanding music release, a uh, 2LP collection, Electric Ladyland. Throughout 1968, the demands of touring and studio work took its toll on the group, and in 1969, the experience disbanded. The summer of 1969 brought emotional and musical growth to Jimi Hendrix in playing the Woodstock, Woodstock, yeah, that's what it is. Woodstock Music and Art Fair in August 1969. Jimi joined forces with an eclectic ensemble called Gypsy Sun and Rainbows, featuring Jimi Hendrix, uh, Mitch Mitchell, Billy Cox, Juma, Juma Sultan, and Jerry Velez. The Woodstock performance was highlighted by the renegade version of the Star-Spangled Banner, which was brought, uh, which brought the mud-soaked audience to a frenzy. Which, yeah, if you've ever seen that also, that's pretty cool. I'm sure you've heard it, at least, because it's, yeah, it's beautiful. And here's just like a little side note about Electric Ladyland. Uh, probably, it's probably one of Jimi Hendrix's most famous songs, is All Along the Watchtower. But that was originally a Bob Dylan song. Yeah, Bob Dylan wrote it. But after... Um, Bob Dylan heard the Jimi Hendrix version. He was stated as saying he never played the song the same. He just said, he said, it's strange. Here's a quote from him. He said, it's strange how when I sing it, I always feel like it's a tribute to him in some kind of way. I liked Hendrix's record, and ever since he died, I've been doing it that way. Which is one of the, like, I think that's like the highest praise you could have. They both respected each other, like, greatly. But now ever since he's passed away, that he's, he said that after the first time he heard the, the Hendrix version, he's never played it the same. So that's, it's just, I think that's amazing. But 
1969 also brought about a new and defining collaboration featuring Jimi Hendrix on guitar, bassist Billy Cox, and electric flag drummer Buddy Miles. Performing as the Band of Gypsies, this trio launched a series of four New Year's performances on December 31st, 1969 and January 1st, 1970. Highlights from these live performances were compiled and later released on the quintessential Band of Gypsies album in mid-1970, and they expanded Hendrix live at the Fillmore East in 1999. As 1970 progressed, Jimmy brought back drummer Mitch Mitchell, that guy again with the, the, the great name, Mitch Mitchell, real original, um, to the group. And together with Billy Cox on the bass, this trio once again formed the Jimi Hendrix Experience. In the studio, the group recorded several tracks for another two-LP set, set tentatively titled First Rays of the New Rising Sun. Unfortunately, Hendrix was unable to see his musical vision through to completion due to his hectic worldwide touring schedules, then tragic death on September 18, 1970. Fortunately, the recordings Hendrix slated for the release of the album were finally issued through the support of his family and original studio engineer, Eddie Kramer, on the 1997 release First Rays of the Rising Sun. Details are disputed concerning Hendrix's last day. He spent much of September 17, 1970 with Monica Daneman in London, and she was the only witness to his final hours. Daneman said that she prepared a meal for them at her apartment in the Sarmakand Hotel around 11 p.m. where they shared a bottle of wine. She drove him to the residence of an acquaintance at approximately 1.45 a.m., where he remained for about an hour before she picked him up and drove them back to her flat at 3 a.m., she said that they talked till around 7 a.m. when they went to sleep. She awoke around 11 a.m. and found Hendrix breathing but unconscious and unresponsive. She called for an ambulance at 11:18 a.m. or p.m. a.m. I'm sorry, a.m. which arrived at 11:27. Paramedics uh, then transported Hendrix to St. Mary Abbott's Hospital, where Dr. John Bannister pronounced him dead at 12:45 on September 18th. Coroner Gavin Thurston ordered a post-mortem examination, which was performed on September 21st by Professor Robert Donald Tare, a forensic pathologist. Thurston completed the inquest on September 28th and concluded that Hendrix aspirated in his own vomit and died of asphyxia while intoxicated with barbiturates. Citing insufficient evidence of the circumstances, he declared an open verdict. Daneman later revealed that Hendrix had taken nine of her prescribed Vesperex sleeping tablets, 18 times the recommended dosage. Desmond Henley embalmed Hendrix's body, which was flown to Seattle on September 29, 1970. Hendrix's family and friends held a service at Dunlap Baptist Church in Seattle's Rainier Valley on October 1st. His body was um, interred at Greenwood Cemetery in Renton, Washington, the location of his mother's grave. Um, family and friends traveled in 24 limousines, and more than 200 people attended the funeral, including Mitz Mitchell, Noel Redding, Miles Davis, John Hammond, and Johnny Winter. His mainstream career only lasted four years, but is widely regarded as one of the most influential guitarists in history and one of the most celebrated musicians of the 20th century. The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame describes him as the greatest instrumentalist in rock, the history of rock music which is pretty powerful, coming from the greatest of the greats. That's, And then I just have one of my all-time favorite quotes to leave you with, with to wrap this up. Um, he said, 
when the power of love overcomes the love of power, the world will know peace. And I think that's a very, even today, it's like one of those timeless quotes that's just, he was, I feel like he was way ahead of his time, obviously, because he was, people were blown away when they heard him and yeah, everything. But yeah, like I said, that's, sorry, it's another short one, but I thought it's just an interesting topic to talk about. I know a lot of people love him. Um, but yeah, it was just something I kind of wanted to do. This was kind of a last minute thing. I'm recording this full disclosure. I'm recording this at like nine o'clock on Sunday and it's going to be released early Monday morning. So, but I've been doing a lot of research and stuff like that. So I just thought it was interesting and it was just, I thought you guys would be interested in it too. So just, uh, let me know what you think of it. Yeah. Like I've said, I know it's shorter and it's not as interactive without somebody to bounce ideas off of, but just thought I'd put something out, something I was interested in. Hopefully you guys are interested in it too. So just, uh, yeah, send us some messages, uh, rate, review, subscribe, all that good stuff. Visit the website, buy some stuff. That'd be pretty neat. Uh, yeah, but that is it for this week. So I appreciate you listening and we will see you next week.